You're listening to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss with the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City. Today on the podcast, we've got archaeologist and author Rachel Morgan. Her new book explores the history of archaeology in the Southwest, as well as the way archaeology has changed over the past 200 years or so. But before we get to that, we've got some news for you. Up first, we've got some troubling news out of Wyoming, where state officials are looking at auctioning off 640 acres of state land inside of Grand Teton National Park called the Kelly Parcel. The long story short here is that the state owns this land and is supposed to manage it or sell it for the financial benefit of the state's public school system. The federal government is interested in buying the land to add it to the national park, but the parcel could sell for much more than the feds are able to pay for it. The state held public listening sessions last month at which residents unanimously opposed the sale of the land into private hands. But the Wyoming Office of State Lands and Investments went ahead and recommended putting the parcel on the auction block with a starting price of $80 million. That's $18 million more than the parcel's appraised value. This price would likely put the land out of reach for the federal government, almost assuring that it's sold to a private developer. The State Board of Land Commissioners, which is composed of the Governor, the Secretary of State, the Auditor, the Treasurer, and Superintendent of Public Education, will vote on December 7th, I think that's tomorrow, whether to go ahead with the auction or not. Now, in order to keep this parcel in public hands and ensure it becomes part of the National Park forever, the state legislature would need to pass a law approving that direct sale to the Park Service. We are seeing headlines now that suggest some legislators want to see a sale price of $100 million, 40% above the last valuation of this parcel. Now, at the end of the day, allowing this parcel to go up for auction would set a terrible precedent. It would open the door to land transfer proponents like Ken Ivory or Mike Lee in Utah, who just want to get rid of national public land altogether. There is a very real risk of public land opponents using the Kelly parcel as a playbook, claiming, oh, it's for the kids, when they really mean it's for the billionaires. We'll keep you updated on how that vote goes in Look West, our daily public lands newsletter. We'll drop a link to subscribe to that into our show notes. Also this week, the president welcomed tribal leaders to D.C. for the White House Tribal Nations Summit, which started today and runs through tomorrow afternoon. Unfortunately, Interior Secretary Deb Holland has COVID, so she's participating remotely. You can live stream the summit from the Interior Department's YouTube page. Last year, Biden promised to designate a Viquame National Monument at the summit, so we'll be keeping an eye out for any monument news. And finally, the public comment period for the Biden administration's proposed protections for lands inside the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska ends tomorrow. Keep an eye out for news from us on that as well. Our guest today is Rachel Morgan. She's the author of Sins of the Shovel, Looting, Murder, and the Evolution of American Archaeology. Rachel is an archaeologist based near Washington, D.C., and her book, which was published earlier this month, is largely focused on the American Southwest. In it, she gives a detailed account of the Wetherill family, which settled in southwest Colorado in the 1800s and explored Chaco Canyon, Mesa Verde, and Grand Gulch extensively. Rachel, welcome to the landscape. Hi, thanks for having me. I want to kick this off with, I think, an existential question that really gets to the heart of your book. You chose this title, Sins of the Shovel, that really gets at the negative implications of early American archaeology. 
Why did you go with this title? And uh, was it a, a struggle at all uh, coming up with this this title for your book? There is definitely some back and forth on uh, what was the best title for the book. And I think Sins of the Shovel really alludes to uh, one of the main topics of the book, and that is that archaeology today is not archaeology of yesterday. It's gone through a lot of changes, um, changes that were very much needed. And that was because of the neg negative implications of early American archaeology. And so um, since is a big word, but archaeology today grapples with a complex past. And so that's why the title was chosen. So some of our closest listeners may have noticed that Aaron used the word explored earlier to describe the Wetherill family's actions in Chaco, Mesa Verde, and Grand Gulch. But we could have also used the word looted or documented in its place. Um, the family made its money in a number of ways, including by selling artifacts collected from cultural sites in the Four Corners, as well as by leading early archaeological excavations. Um, Rachel, how do you think the Wetherills should be remembered today? Yes, it's a fine line that they towed, and sometimes they were not um, collecting to sell things, and sometimes they were collecting explicitly to sell things. Sometimes they were working um, in league with uh, reputable museums and professional archaeologists, and sometimes uh, they were presenting their work to professional archaeologists who were asking them to please stop. <laughs> um, it's, it's very complicated. Um, the regulations that we have today were not in place at the time. So legally, at many times, they were not uh, legally looting uh, sites. However, today we would consider illicitly collecting artifacts and individuals from archaeological sites and selling them for profit or for collecting them for your mantle, for your personal pleasure to be looting. So it's, it's, it's a complicated le legacy that they hold. So the Wetherills actually lived inside of Chaco Canyon, which is crazy to me. I don't think I understood that. I, I actually lived down in the Four Corners in Bluff, Utah for a while, which makes a number of appearances in your book. But I didn't ever know that the Wetherills lived in the ruins of Chaco Canyon. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, I think it was a matter of convenience. They were spending so much time in the ruins and spending so much time uh, excavating and digging and collecting that it just made sense to them to uh, at first live outside of Pueblo Bonito and then they started building on to the ruin and uh, making a home for themselves. And they also uh, ran a trade store outside of the uh, site and they raised their family there. Uh, it was very much home to them. They saw no separation between um, this archeological treasure that uh, has ancestral ties to many communities and that uh, is you know, a resource that everyone should be able to enjoy. They very much saw it as appropriate to claim it as their own and to start living there. What role did the Wetherills play in the development and passage of the Antiquities Act? So uh, they were doing a lot of their uh, collections at the same time that there was this big push uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century by advocates from around the country uh, for the passage of a historic preservation legislation that would um, protect uh, sites and put a stop to looting. There was not yet a law that could punish looters in the country. And so they, one of the uh, early 
uh, excavations or collecting endeavors that they guided was into Mesa Verde with a gentleman from Sweden. And um, many, many tons of artifacts and individuals ended up leaving the country with this gentleman. And that case was specifically cited um, by a committee that was advocating for the Antiquities Act to Congress. Um, And so their work was of concern to many people. Can you also talk about the concerns over them living in Chaco and their their uh, attempts to get a homestead on Chaco Canyon? They tried to claim that as their homestead. And why were the um, why didn't that work? And what was the view on that from the federal government? So there had been some controversy. There were a lot of accusations swirling around. Uh, there's not evidence of all of them. Um, however, the fact that these trading stores were set up right alongside these um, excavations that were sponsored by museums became a concern to a lot of people. And so there had been requests for that, those claims that, you know, all of this stuff is just being put on the market to be investigated. And so there was an investigation and it didn't necessarily completely implicate the family, but there were concerns raised. And so then afterwards, the family tried to make a homestead claim. And it was kind of seen that this was kind of a backdoor way of trying to maintain control of the ruins. There were some technical uh, uh, issues, I guess, with the homestead, but uh, there were also some broader concerns that uh, this is really not about gaining a home. This is about gaining control of the past. How how were the Witherills perceived by the broader scientific and academic communities in the time that they were living and working in the Four Corners area? Different scholars uh, had different opinions of their work, and some chose to work directly with them and appreciated having somebody who knew the land really well and could easily guide them to these areas and have the resources to be in an area that was remote at the time for long periods of time without running into trouble. Some people really needed that guidance, especially scholars coming in from the East, and they appreciated working with the family and decided to be long-term partners with the family. However, you had other people who felt that their recording standards were not up to the professional standards of the time, which were admittedly very limited in themselves. And they did not want to work with the family and they wanted the family to stop collecting. And so um, this was one of the problems of early American archaeology. There wasn't a lot of standardization and there wasn't a clear message from the professional community that this is what is acceptable and this is what is not acceptable. And there were no regulations to further uh, make that very clear line to the public. So let's talk about Native Americans for a moment, because after all the these sites that they were visiting were all created by um, Native Americans. And um, the Wetherills actually had Navajo folks working for them at doing some of these excavations, sometimes even against their own indigenous beliefs systems. So how did the Wetherills and other early explorers, other early white explorers in this area view Native Americans, specifically the Navajo and the Pueblo people? Sure. Um, Indigenous people were critical to the uh, explorations or collections that were made and discussed in this book. And the way the Wetherills engaged with the Indigenous communities was um, on the same level that many other European Americans were engaging with Indigenous peoples. 
they saw uh, indigenous peoples as inferior to European Americans, and they saw the world in this very hierarchical system. They were quite happy to use indigenous peoples for labor. They were very comfortable asking indigenous communities for information and relying on them as informants, but they were not equal. They were not given credit for their work. You will not find most of their names in the reports that eventually came out of these uh, projects. And um, so it was an unequal footing, but they could not have done the work without the indigenous communities that they engaged with. Was there resistance from indigenous communities to some of this work of the early white explorers and uh, pot hunters slash looters? Uh, I don't get into any instances of indigenous communities specifically saying, please get out of um, Chaco Canyon. However, there are conflicts documented uh, between the uh, people uh, leading the excavations and the indigenous workers who are doing the actual digging. And some of these conflicts are about uh, control of land. Some of these conflicts are about I'm having these concerns about engaging with the individuals and materials that are coming out of this place. And I have concerns that we shouldn't be doing this. And those concerns were usually dismissed. So you refer to cultural sites and artifacts in the book as non-renewable resources. What does that term mean and why why do you use it? Why do you think it's important to sort of call out the, the non-renewable nature of these things? Sure. Um, so archaeological sites are really unique capsules of specific people and times and places that are no longer with us. And so once we lose those sites, maybe there is a site that is comparable, but it is unlikely that that site was touched by this specific people as the destroyed site. And so in that sense, these sites are non-renewable. Um, once we can't get them back once they are destroyed. We can't get the data back uh, once it is taken from us. So they are non-renewable resources. In the view, looking at what the Weatherills did and also uh, organizations or, or expeditions like the Hyde Expedition, looking at them through the modern lens of what archaeology is today, what did they do right and what did they do wrong? It is a bit unfair to judge uh, all of their work off of our modern standards. They didn't know what they didn't know. And uh, so to be fair to them, what they left behind is um, some extensive notes about their work. Um, not all of those notes are from the Weatherwells themselves. They were also made by other participants in the Hyde Exploring Expedition. But those notes and uh, the report that archaeologist George Pepper generated remains a very valuable piece of archaeological literature. A lot of the materials that uh, were collected from the Hyde Exploring Expedition ended up in museums. And so those materials are still studied by archaeologists today. And so the big wrong in this case study is the selling of materials and ancestral individuals for profit and the collection of archaeological materials and individuals from archaeological sites for pleasure to put on their mantle and enjoy for themselves. That's the real damage that was done and the damage that can't be undone. So speaking of damage that can't be undone, um, obviously you ship skeletons overseas with 
no notes, you sell them into the black market, those are gone forever. Um, but what are some of the ways in which modern archaeology has recovered from some of this shoddy work or um, unethical work done by early explorers? Um, the biggest way that archaeology has recovered is by transitioning into a very regulated discipline. And so today, looting is punishable by federal law. And so that is one huge change from the past. And it's a huge uh, tool for archaeologists to protect sites today. Another huge law for us is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And through that act, many ancestral individuals and sacred objects have been repatriated to the communities that consider them to be their ancestors. And many of the uh, individuals that were removed uh, from Mesa Verde, Chaco Canyon, and the Grand Gulch during the Weatherwell years have been returned home. So there are a lot of uh, positive transformations that have come out of this transition into a regulated field. So so that's on the legal side. Um, one thing I was really interested to read in your book is that even though these pots are gone, you know, the beautiful black on white pottery, the artifacts like shell necklaces and whatnot, those are long gone from these these sites. Um, they've kind of been swept clean almost. It almost looks like someone came in with a broom in some of these. But even in those sites, archaeologists are able to go in and use modern science to learn so much about these cultures. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? And, and also, I guess I should add, they're able to use modern techniques on artifacts that are in museums now? Sure. Science has definitely come a long way um, from the 19th century. So there are new techniques developed every day that allow archaeologists to try to put the puzzle pieces back together and find out new information, uh, information as detailed as these ceramic vessels were once held um, cocoa from uh, you know, very far south. And so we are very fortunate that science keeps helping us to uh, learn more and more about these uh, objects and the people who made them. I wonder if we can take a little detour into the the global perspective, where archaeology was at the time and where it is today. And I, I was thinking about that because I happened to be in, in Egypt for a bit over Thanksgiving week, touring Saqqara, one absolutely spectacular archaeological site uh, that is now more or less a tourist attraction in the parts that have been stabilized and restored. And there is still a lot of archaeology happening there. Um, and you can't help but be aware especially across Egypt, that the vast majority, a whole lot of what was once there is now already sitting in the Louvre and the British Museum and places like that, rather than in place uh, at these sites where they could still be displayed and maintained today. So how does the looting and the archaeology that happened in the 19th century how is that being addressed today, both in the U.S. and around the world? Sure. Um, definitely, uh, it's a great point that American archaeology was not the only destructive archaeology 
all archaeology in the 19th and early 20th century was very destructive. You had people using gunpowder to blast through uh, sites. It- I, I, I saw one of those sarcophagus that had been b- literally blown up by dynamite to get inside. Yeah, yeah, it, it was uh, not good times for archaeology. <laughs> glad, to, <laughs> glad to have that behind us. Um, but uh, there are a lot of discussions about... Um, what should be repatriated and to where does it uh, need to be repatriated to? And that goes for ancestral individuals as well as objects. And some of these debates are very controversial. The countries that were doing a lot of taking have gotten very comfortable with seeing those objects every day. And the countries that had stuff taken from them would very much like their stuff back. So it's um, a debate that continues, and I think a lot of archaeologists look forward to seeing more repatriation happening. So we've kind of touched on this now a few times, but you mentioned the Antiquities Act, um, uh, NAGPRA, other laws that have come into existence in the past 100 years or so. The Antiquities Act was passed in 1906, so over 100 years ago, but it, it wasn't super powerful when it first passed. It didn't really stop looting very well. Could you talk about some of those other preservation laws that passed in the wake of the Antiquities Act and what catalyzed um, their passage? Yes, it's one of the very funny things about the Antiquities Act. It has been used for the creation of national monuments in a a huge way. um, And that is very important. But no one really tried to stop looting with the Antiquities Act. And so um, one of the big laws that came through to make up for the shortcomings in the uh, language of the Antiquities Act in terms of looting was the Archaeological Resources Protection Act. It was written in the later 20th century. And so by then, the way legislation was written had changed. And so it be it was and remains a more powerful law for going after looters. Um, there are much heavier penalties in terms of jail time, in terms of fines that can be levied at people who are convicted of looting on federal or tribal lands. And so it was uh, a really monumental piece of legislation for archaeology in America. Given these complicated, largely negative legacies of the Wetherills and other early explorers, do we need to look at places that have their names on them. I'm thinking specifically Wetherill Mesa inside Mesa Verde. Uh, Is it time to rename some of these spots uh, to to something else? Yeah, I think that um, the names of landmarks should reflect the desires and concerns of the communities who have ties to them and who are still living within them. And so I think that is a broader discussion that Uh, should be left to those communities in terms of if they feel that this legacy is so uh, complex and not something that they want to continue to have. Hmm. We touched on repatriation, which is when Native communities or other Indigenous communities get their stuff back, essentially, get skeletons back, get artifacts back. So, But we haven't really talked about modern archaeology in relation to Indigenous beliefs. How has that evolved? Um, obviously, the folks who worked for the the Navajo folks who worked for the Weatherills, um, as you write in your book, were were conflicted over doing that work, especially over unburying um, their deceased relatives. So, what are what are the struggles that remain for modern archaeology in terms of reconciling with indigenous beliefs? I think 
the field has changed a lot. Um, I think that respect for indigenous communities and for different uh, beliefs about the appropriateness of archaeology is really stressed as a big ethic in archaeology today. And again, it comes down to legal compliance. When archaeological excavations happen today, they're usually done under the National Historic Preservation Act. And under that law, tribes have a right to be informed and to consult with the entities that are doing that excavation. And so it's really helpful that uh, that law exists because even if there are archaeologists that have not embraced this new ethic, they still have to, um, by law, engage with indigenous communities and their voices uh, have to be heard. And so it's another part of this regulatory uh, shift for the discipline that is very valuable. Your book mentions uh, what you call an ongoing curation crisis. Can you describe what that is and what the implications are for modern archaeology? Sure. The curation crisis comes out of some lessons that were uh, learned the hard way for archaeology. And so in the past, when uh, objects were removed from sites, they were often put into bags or boxes that we know today have acidic properties. And these acidic properties can degrade archaeological materials over time. They didn't know that in the past. We know that now. Um, Another thing that often happened in the past is somebody, uh, an archaeologist, left their job at one museum, uh, moved on to a new place, or retired from a university, and they left behind them boxes and boxes from this excavation that still had a lot of work to do on it. And the next person who came in was interested in another area, so they just shoved all that stuff in the closet and walked away. And so this was a time before there were regulations about um, archival processes, and so um, these boxes often ended up in places that didn't have any pest control or a fire suppression system. And so what you would run into is collections getting water damage or having pest infestations. Um, And so all of that has left us with a lot of collections that could use some considerable TLC. Um, They need to be rebagged, reboxed into um, bags and boxes that are not acidic. And while that may sound like a very quick and easy process, uh, you can easily grab a box and find that it has um, 50 bags in it and each bag has 500 to 1,000 artifacts in it. And so restoring a collection that has 200 boxes is a process that takes years and years and years. So it's a considerable um, endeavor in terms of manpower um, and resources to get these collections in the shape that they need to be. But in terms of actual cost, then, are we talking in the millions, tens of millions? How much money would we as a, as a nation, let's say, need to, to put towards this? Uh, most of the estimates say millions, um, tens of millions easily. Um, and that's usually those estimates are based on federal collections because that's an easy way to get a number. That's not talking about collections that are universities, state archives. So there's a lot of work to be done. But in the grand scheme of federal budgets, $20 million over a few years does start to, it's not nothing, but it's also not a massive, massive number in terms of federal budgets. That's that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so another part of this curation crisis that you write about is the fact that there's simply not enough space for all these artifacts in climate controlled, pest controlled um, museums, storage containers, things like that. So what happens these days to artifacts like when when there are digs that happen either for science or for salvage archaeology where they're just coming through and digging and documenting things before a, a building is built on top of a site? Where do those go? Um, if a collection is excavated under a federally funded project, then it should be complying with 36 CFR 79, which is the requirement that these collections go into archives that meet the standards of today, which would have a pest control plan, a fire suppression system, and um, those sort of basic safeguards in place. For privately funded and university funded and state funded excavations, those requirements may vary. And so while it's an example of we're very lucky to have the federal regulations that we have, but once we go outside of that federal nexus, we lose a lot of the protections that we have for the past. So speaking of the many laws we have that protect cultural sites. Um, unfortunately, there's they still don't seem to be enough. Um, there's not enough funding and ma- manpower to enforce these laws specifically targeted at looting um, of cultural sites. So what do you think the best way to protect these sites is now, um, such as, you know, the ones in Bears Ears or, or things that are, are pretty far off the beaten path? Maybe there are still some artifacts possibly there. How do you protect those areas? Yeah, I think we continue to ask for more resources, but also we're very fortunate in archaeology that a lot of people care about the past for a lot of different reasons. There are a lot of wonderful organizations out there where people can get involved to help monitor sites and report back to archaeologists if they see anything of concern. Uh, It's also great. The more people we have on board with the policy of see something, say something. If you see someone looting and you can tell a law enforcement official, that's always helpful. If you see something, someone selling antiquities online, you can report them and you can, the easiest thing is to abstain from engaging in those practices yourself and from purchasing any illicitly acquired uh, items. I want to wrap by asking about the audience for your book, if you could get your book into the hands of any you know, two or three people out there, who would you really want to read this and what would you hope, what would you hope they take away from it? Yeah, I uh, would love for anyone to uh, read the book and learn more about the archaeology in this country and the wonderful transformations that the discipline has uh, experienced over the centuries and the incredibly important legislation that we have to protect um, the past today. All right. I think we will leave it there. Rachel Morgan, the book is Sins of the Shovel, Looting, Murder, and the Evolution of American Archaeology. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you, guys. And a little bit of good news for you. I guess, in a way, wolverines have finally been listed as threatened in the lower 48 states following a decade of advocacy by environmental groups. Wolverines are, of course, in the weasel family. They live in cold areas of the western United States. They rely on deep snow throughout the late spring to build their dens, but of course, in recent decades, snowpack has been steadily decreasing. 
There are now only around 300 wolverines left in the lower 48. They used to roam from the northern U.S. all the way down to New Mexico. Now they only exist in small populations in the Rockies and the Cascades. Thanks to this listing as threatened, what's left of the wolverine habitat can be better preserved now, and federal agencies will now have to consider the needs of wolverines when making land management decisions. That's all for today, folks. If you have comments or suggestions for us, email podcast at westernpriorities.org. And go give us a follow on Threads if you have it. And consider making an account if you don't. We're really trying to make Threads happen because, well, the site formerly known as Twitter sucks. Yeah, no way around that. Hey, thanks again to Rachel Morgan for her time and her insight today. We've got a link to her book in the show notes as well. And thank you for listening to The Landscape. The Landscape.